0: Welcome to Inspired to be Authentic. My name is Matt Lansedal and I am your host. Inspired to be Authentic is a podcast where we converse with people who are living their most authentic lives. We get real with our guests and talk openly about how they live with courage to be themselves. We explore barriers they have overcome to be more authentic and aligned to themselves and their purpose. Today we are joined by Matthew Skinta. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, today's episode 15 and we're talking about how vulnerability can heal shame. So as we know, um, authenticity is something we're all working towards, uh, being more comfortable in our own skin, and shame tends to be a barrier to that. And we're going to talk all about how we can learn to live more authentic, more aligned to our truth, and how that can help us um, heal our shame and step more closer in line with our authenticity. So we are um, joined with uh, Matthew, and he's going to talk to us all about um, some really cool things about vulnerability, and we're going to just delve into a really cool conversation Um, So Matthew is um, an assistant professor of psychology at Roosevelt University in Chicago. His research and clinical work emphasize vulnerability, acceptance, and self-compassion. And he trains therapists to do better work with LGBTQ plus people around the globe to this end. He was raised Southern Baptist and in a military family and credits entering his teens in the Netherlands before Kansas with the thread of hope he had uh, that he could one day live an open queer life. He now lives with his Parisian husband in Chicago, following 11 years in San Francisco, where he had a private practice on Castro street next door to Harvey milk's former camera shop. Right on. I like it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I also lived in Michelle Foucault's old apartment. So it's, I'm, I'm doing my best to live my queerest
0: life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good. Good. Right on. Yeah. Right on. Um, so I would love to actually start even just by kind of digging into uh, what it was like growing up Southern Baptist, a military family um you know yeah. when you think about that, you think, okay, maybe he did struggle with um, being queer in his upbringing because of of that is that true uh definitely so um
1: when I was six, my mom remarried a guy who was raised southern baptist and um and uh you know my Father was military as well, so uh, ac- actually, so was my mom. So uh, uh, there was this conservative environment early on, and one of my first references I remember to you know homosexuality, which I'll put in scare quotes because it sounds so <laughs> diagnostic, was um, I was probably only six or seven when you know, and this is in the mid '80s when um, uh, the ministers at Baptist churches were talking about. AIDS is God's punishment for being gay. Wow. Um, I certainly didn't know fully that that applied to me at the time, what they were saying. Um, and and I mentioned that part about the Netherlands because I remember being 10, you know, so when you go abroad, uh, we moved when I was eight uh, to Germany, Uh back to Germany, that's where I was born, and uh, then to the Netherlands after. And you typically attend what are called Dodds schools. It's Department of Defense schools. So everyone is the child of someone in the military, which also kind of colors the environment, colors the hierarchy and stereotypes. And, um, and I remember in the smaller school in the Netherlands, this would have been like 91, uh, we had an op-ed in the Dutch newspaper, in uh, Dutch class, and, uh, where a guy was describing um, how he'd seen somebody staring at a same-sex couple holding hands in the town square, and he was just lamenting that this is not a Dutch value. you don't stare at people like that like these are your neighbors. these are somebody's loved ones and um, and and that I I just felt it was so powerful because then moving from that to uh, Kansas right after the Summer of Mercy, which was uh, sort of a huge evangelical revival going on in the U.S. at the time uh, in the Wichita, Kansas area, um, it it gave me the ability to always hold on to the awareness that no matter how conservative the place I was, um, that 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 wasn't the only place on the planet. Those weren't Mm -hmm. the only environments I'd be in. Um, I certainly, I certainly really struggled with, with secrecy and the shame that comes around that. I, I, I remember, uh, reading a reference online to, um, the hospital where my mother was working as a psychiatric nurse as one where they would, they were allegedly, um, Fudging the diagnoses, or willing to put depression or anxiety, so that they could involuntarily hospitalize and treat kids that had come out to their parents, and that's where wow. my mom was working. So, um, so it was definitely the 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 secrecy and the the shame, the fear of being discovered were were pretty big presences. How old were you when you came out? Um, I was. Let's see. I first started telling friends at school when I was sixteen, um, but it wasn't until I was uh, I was eighteen or nineteen when I told my mom. And in part, it was like I I didn't know if I'd be involuntarily committed. I didn't know if I'd you know wind up kicked out. So um, so so I tried to be pragmatic. I wanted to. Um, I wanted to protect myself from being hurt, which, which ties into so many themes around how we like move away from vulnerability, right. Of yeah. like, you know, you've probably heard of like the best little boy in the world phenomena that, that idea, we all become superstar overachievers in the community. So that it's, it's all that same story. I do this so I can't get
0: hurt. Yeah. What was it that um, gave you the courage to be able to start to speak your truth? Like, um, yeah, I—I I mean, for me,
1: I've been living with it for so long. Um, you know, I remember being nine or ten and looking in the family encyclopedia, reading the entries about homosexuality. Or uh, back in the '90s when I was in high school and could drive, and I—I I hid the blockbuster tape under my car seat. I—I um, I remember renting a beautiful thing. The. The, this British teen romance mm-hmm. uh, and um, so so really I'd, I'd made a promise to myself a long time before that that you know okay if if I'm worried about safety then once I feel I'm safe I'll come out once I feel you know then I then I can be open and I was I was already beginning to be active in uh, LGBTq activism on campus and things like that hmm
0: Yeah. Interesting. And so the the process for you, it sounds like you, you, you struggled with self-acceptance in your earlier years. How did you start to develop acceptance for yourself to be able to get that courage to want to speak your truth? And, um, I, I think it was sort of gradually unfolding. Like, I'm not
1: sure how your experience was, but when I was in, you know, when I was in college and I'm in these activism circles and I was like, I was so ready to just kind of live my best life. I, I just charged and I remembered being irate with an undergrad human sexuality professor who made this comment about how, uh, uh, about his clinical work, working with couples. And he was like, but for gay and lesbian couples, you always have to work on shame. Mm. I was just like, that's, uh, you know, I don't, I have shame. I'm like I'm over that. I'm out of the house. I'm doing my own thing, and um, so I feel like it unfolded. Because if you'd have asked me back then, I just I I I don't know what I'd say, but I'd feel like I was over it. And it and it took a while, and it actually took like moving and being in more conservative environments again uh, through my schooling, through work, to realize, oh wow, like I'm still carrying all these habits with me, all these habits of trying to. Be under the radar of trying to appease other people that seem threatening, of trying to uh, achieve in ways that that I can stand apart from other people, Mm -hmm. and so um, I I mean it's been an active, ongoing process. I don't I don't know when it ends.
0: Yeah, (laughs) right. I know. I know. Um, I want to share a little bit about my story, but I want to ask you something before I forget it. Um, The habits. What What were the habits? What were you doing? in order to kind of, um, it sounds like maybe um, disguise yourself from the shame or, or from having to experience that? What were these habits that you were forming?
1: Um, one was, uh, I, I always think of this academic presentation that I saw once that uh, based on John Pachankis's work, who does a lot of research here, where he referred to social submission as an aspect of rejection sensitivity. And this idea of... Um, uh like I, I remember a number of times with direct sort of homophobic statements by my first clinical supervisor, by faculty in my uh, in my graduate program, and I wouldn't speak up. I'd I'd, you know, I'd sort of knuckle down, put my head down, put my shoulder to the grindstone, and I'd just figure I'd get through it. And um, and I'd occasionally try and put out feelers if, you know, well, does the department chair have my back? Does this person, and, and when I, it, when I, or if I um, encountered some signs that I was just sort of going it alone, then, then I just sort of retreat back. I felt like I got so much smaller again in grad school in rural Ohio compared to the super liberal, little oasis of Lawrence, Kansas, where I went to undergrad. And, and then it took me time again to, to challenge
0: those. Yeah. I've had, Oh my God. I relate so much to your story because it's, I've, I've played that in in my, my, authenticity and my confidence became very dependent on the environment that, that I was in. And that was what really I started to struggle with so much. And that's why all my work now is built around authenticity and being your authentic self, no matter which environment that, you, that you're in. And I know for myself, like the habits that I can think of were all built around masculinity. Because my my idea around what it meant to be gay was that you're now less than you're, you're not as a much of a man because these are the messages that I heard growing up, right? If you're a fag, you're, you're not as, as masculine. So I made sure that I had a masculine persona really, really entrenched into to who I was before I came out. So I was, I got a motorcycle. I played hockey. I made sure my voice was deep. <laughs> I made sure I didn't walk with, you know, my too much hip, right? All these things I began to just really manufacture this, this masculine version of myself. And um, because finding my authenticity is, was actually undoing a lot of this, this, I don't like the word toxic masculinity. I, I call it unconscious masculinity, and um, I had to unlearn that and and make my masculine my masculinity more conscious, and also learn how to embrace the feminine aspects of of who I was. And um, that's when I started to become really aligned to my authenticity.
1: I yeah, there's this there's this piece where because um, that performative masculinity, like I. I struggled with it, but in different ways, because at the same time and in the environment I grew up in, I was exposed to, to a lot of, you know, there's no way to describe it, but toxic masculinity, like uh, violence, a lot of aggression. Um, Most of my siblings at least did a brief stint in the military. uh, My older brother's career military. So, um, so, so for me, you know, and I, I was also waiting to move out of the house to become vegan and I worked at a veterinary clinic in high school. And I, so, so for me, there was all, always this sort of desire to be a more compassionate kind of man. And, uh, and I didn't feel like I saw those models. So maybe that spared me a little, but I, I mean I definitely struggled when I was first encountering the community with with my own kind of internalized femophobia and things like that of yeah. not wanting to you know well well I don't have to be that guy but but I also don't want to be this guy and so yeah how
0: how can these experiences I want to I want we can maybe co-answer this question because yeah. how can, how can these experiences being uh, growing up gay, being different even, because anybody can relate to that, being different, being a minority. Yeah, How sure. can these actually accelerate us on the path of of developing consciousness or developing whatever we're, we're working our way towards developing? How can it be an advantage? I think, I, I mean,
1: I've often thought, no, I don't think this is a panacea and I don't think it works for everybody, but um I, I've often thought that the the biggest advantage comes from kind of puncturing the bubble we're raised in. If I have to question my family's homophobia, then what messages have I gotten about race? What messages have I gotten about religion? What message and spirituality? What messages have I gotten about politics that uh, that maybe I want to question too? Mm. Um, and and that's not to say that. People with within the community don't wind up across the spectrum, but I think we have we have an invitation to challenge ourselves and think about what's really authentic to us. That I don't think everyone has. I mean, when I look at Facebook and I see some of my old high school classmates, that some of them and they seem to be having you know the the uh, straight gender ones that seem to be having these like happy family lives in the same town. Um, I I don't know if they had the same um impetus or desire to to challenge like what messages were wrong and and certainly they've grown in different directions as people but was that organic is that just because when you when you check all the mainstream boxes you just move with the flow mm-hmm. um but i i certainly feel like i'd have been a radically different type of man if i were straight and uh and i doubt it would be a better
0: one Hmm. I like that I think for myself the one thing that stands out for me would be my connection to my intuition mm-hmm. I because I grew up being very hyper vigilant having to monitor around course, me yeah. constantly and be constantly observing I became very accustomed to creating a um this ability to be intuitive in who I let into my circle or not. I, but I also do think that that at first it became something that I had to really be mindful of because my filter was always perceiving rejection. So I had, once I learned to not perceive rejection in my environment and allow, um, allow it to kind of be where people, people are always judging right and i get to choose what i pick up and what i don't and i think that that was a big big thing for me so my i learned to see my sensitivity as my superpower because now i've built a career around being using my sensitivity to my advantage and working with people um that's one of them. And then I, there's also something Eckhart Tolle made a, there, I can't remember the exact quote. It's a pretty long, it's a whole page in, in the power of now around being gay and um, how that can be an advantage or a disadvantage. But the advantage being when we don't identify with the mainstream collective consciousness or unconsciousness, depending on how you want to look at it, we, we develop this mechanism to question Mm-hmm. what is what what do we want how do we want to fit into this this world around us because we're already having to ask ourselves that question because we're different right so we can we can easily develop um present moment awareness in our own consciousness because of that because we're, we're we're already asking ourselves the question we already feel like, like we're an outsider so i thought that was pretty interesting too and that's that's kind of the truth for me but the other side of the coin was that we can easily become over-identified with the gay community and feel like we have to identify with this gay stereotype, and therefore we lose our individuality and our consciousness along that path as well. So it's, you know, there's always two sides to every coin, I guess.
1: Yeah, it makes me think of two things. So one is, when I was 19, I got this scholarship, so I got to go from Kansas to the Bay Area to... Uh, the Creating Change Conference, which is a big U.S.-based <laughs> activism conference each year. And um, and uh, one of the speakers, I think this may have only been a year before his death, was Harry Hay. So he founded the Mattachine Society, so the first real uh, uh, gay activism group in the U.S. Um, he uh, uh, started up uh, the Radical Fairies, sort of embracing the sense of uh, queer, queer Native spirituality and his, his talk was about this idea of uh, he quoted a lot from one of, uh, I think it was one of Darwin's cousins, but, um, but this idea that, uh, that our socialization works just like evolution in the animal world. If a trait recurs again and again, it's because it's advantageous to the group. And he says, we need to embrace that there's something about our queerness that makes the world better, that the path forward is to embrace that that there's something necessary Mm -hmm. about our queerness for humanity to thrive. And he saw it as this outsider role we have the role to step back from whatever institutions have been set up from whatever mainstream practices and look at it through different eyes and and change things um And then the other thing that comes to mind is just there was a recent study talking about how we focus so much on research on how um, we're affected by homophobia and the general environment. Um, But actually, when you look at stressors that gay men complain about, one of them is the competition with each other. And I think that speaks to the more you get pulled the other direction, the more you're like, I'm just going to immerse myself among other gay men and do that, then you start getting this competition, this competition to have a certain type of body, a certain type of job, a certain way of dressing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The the first point that you made, I had a question. Um, Yeah. What do you think that is? What do you think that special ingredient, like why would our creator bring this forward and I also wonder that about about trans people yeah what, what what do you think based off of evolution that we're meant to be having these experiences right now where we're coming forward what what do you think that is um ah oh, that's an interesting <laughs> question I because I don't
1: I don't often think of it in these terms but um but there is uh you know I think there is this good metaphor when we think about social change and you know we we evolve as a as uh as a species socially now you know there's there's a lot written about how um as soon as a species becomes a social species like us like you know like ants that um that that variations in behavior start being what drives things forward that's what shifts a population and and i do like the idea that 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 having us in every generation, like that's where the potential comes for someone to say, you know, this this isn't working, this thing everyone's doing, this way everyone's talking about how to be a man or how to be a woman or how we relate to each other, this doesn't seem to work for me. Mm. Um, I can't speak uh, from the trans experience. Though I always remember this talk I attended when I was younger by Kate Bornstein, who's a, a prolific writer and trans activist, who um, said that she liked to think of being trans as the idea, of, or, or link it to the Buddhist idea of the bodhisattva, of um, the 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 being that that rather than moving toward enlightenment, says I'll continue to take on the challenges of the world that I'll I'll be able to, um, that that I can have an experience of rising to the occasion of compassion mm-hmm. in a way that models how everyone should be compassionate, that models how everyone should deal with human difference. Um, I'm probably not doing her words justice, but...
0: Yeah, well, you gave me chills. <laughs> I just totally got the shivers when you said that, because it's like... I, I, I think that even speaks more to what I was going to say. And I was thinking about masculine, feminine, and duality that we experience on this planet. And right now, I feel it on this planet. We're, we're being asked to invite the feminine back to equal where the masculine is. And and this is happening on this planet. And there's a lot of resistance. There's a lot of shame that men are experiencing around the feminine aspects of their being coming to the surface, and um, I d- really do think that um, queer people, trans people, are are helping people make this transformation and, and are bringing more balance to um, gender fluidity maybe gender equality, gender fluidity, because um, we're starting to see a lot of this coming to the surface. And I know it's not new. Uh, it's yeah. people are feeling safer to bring it forth in be more, their, their more authentic self.
1: Well, and I, and I wonder if, you know if even beyond sort of raising feminine to, to masculine as, as, as both valuable traits, if um, we're seeing a shift toward just throwing it all out the window that we don't need that duality at all that um, I saw the other day, Dutch IDs are going to stop having sex markers on them. Mm-hmm. Like, like what is that? Who does that help to have, to, to have a signifier of, of uh how we're moving through the world or what gender we're performing on our ID.
0: Yeah. Who cares? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really fascinating. And for people who've never been exposed to this sort of stuff, it's like they might see it as weird or that it's because, because I think the human being loves to have label. They love to know, you know, are you a man or are you a woman? So I know where to categorize you in my own perception of the world. And I think that's what it is. So people find safety in certainty of labels and and um i also think with the pandemic right now we're being asked to let go of our attachment to certainty we're being asked to be okay with uncertainty to a certain degree and i think yeah. this is where a lot of the stuff the havoc is being wreaked on this world right now because of that people do not find safety and uncertainty and it's it makes them feel they need to grab and control and have power and i think that's what we're seeing right now
1: it's yeah, I think it,
0: just to bring those two
1: together, I've been reading about how um, a couple of countries in the northern part of Latin America at the early part of the pandemic, uh, to limit people on the street for quarantine, they had gendered days. So alternating like women shop this day, men shop this day. And it almost immediately became grounds for harassment, arrest, beatings of trans people. And so it's that that conflict between like as people are looking for certainty and groundedness queer and trans bodies become that much more threatening and i think that's that's a little bit of the dynamic here too where you know every week there's something about the administration in the u.s trying to um uh push discrimination in healthcare, or a memo leaked the other day about how they're sending out um Memos. This is the U.S. government sending uh, homeless shelters tips on how, well, they can't ask for a physical exam, but on ways to try and spot if a transgender person is trying to enter a gendered shelter um, so that they could exclude them.
0: Wow. Yeah. I just don't get it. I just don't get it. And I never will. Yeah. Same. Hmm. So how can vulnerability heal shame? (laughs) Let's, let's dig into this one. Um, for, okay, actually, first off, I want to ask you this question. I like to ask all people that have a clinical background, this question, because I think it always uh, insights really good conversation. What is the purpose of shame?
1: Uh, so I think per- shame, you know, I was talking before about how we evolve as social animals now. And so I think of shame as kind of our our light on the dashboard, like the check engine light that says your social connections are threatened, which, you know, now we can survive that to some extent. But, um, but when you think of the hundreds of thousands of years, our ancestors were probably in remote uh, wandering bands of 80 people like that means you die Mm -hmm. that means you break a leg and no one feeds you anymore that means you're left alone to defend yourself so so it's that check engine light that says those connections you need to survive they're threatened do something
0: yeah so it's almost like so conformity keeps the tribe together keeps us in line yeah that's why you, you think that's the purpose of shame
1: uh, well, I, I mean, I think there's the underlying threat of survival. I mean, I think there was a long part of our evolved history where it literally meant survival or death if we, if we burnt those bridges. So I think shame is just that message that says, um, that says you might be kicked out. You might be kicked out of the tribe. You mm. might be kicked out of your people. You yep. might be alone. And that's death.
0: And that's yeah exactly, yeah. Um, how does shame express itself in in your experience? <clears throat> it's, um, I mean, there are the
1: there are the obvious ways you know when we're when we're immediately exposed to shame and we blush or we try and hide our face or uh, there are all these cross cultural studies like we touch our face, we try and cover our eyes, things like that. <laughs> um, but there are the there, there are the more subtle ways that um, we we don't speak up uh, in groups or when we see something wrong happening we um, we become interpersonally guarded we don 't tell people about ourselves you know there are studies about how compared to straight people that uh, uh, Gay men, for example, report that we're way more likely to keep our private and our personal life, uh, or, or uh, uh, public and personal life, very, very separate. That that we don't talk about what we do on the weekend with our coworkers. We don't talk about our relationships with our coworkers, and uh, and vice versa. That we we just try and compartmentalize our lives. And I think that the strict compartmentalization is a big way shame comes out too. Um, and then. And then the more guarded we are and the less we share what's going on with ourselves emotionally, you can't have intimate relationships that way. You might not have to feel the fear of rejection, but you're also never close to anyone. And so that's what I think of when I think of shame showing up in the therapy room.
0: Yeah, uh, we're, so, we're so aligned. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that we were able to connect because this conversation is this conversation's yeah. awesome for me. This is the birthplace of my work. This is what I love to do. Inspired to be authentic uh, came from this this exact thing, feeling lonely in the gay community because I was wearing masks. And then when I started to peel my masks off, I started to feel even lonelier because everyone else was wearing a mask and I couldn't relate to them anymore. And it put yeah. me into a deep depression of feeling like I'm, I can't connect to other gay men. And these are the people that I, this is the pool of people that I'm expected to find intimacy and connection with because this is who I'm drawn to. So yeah. that's, that's the birthplace of the work that I do. And um so, so what, I know there's many solutions and, and many answers, but like, sure. what's one that comes to mind for you? Like to, what's a remedy yeah. for shame? What do we need to start to heal, heal our shame? So, so
1: one, just one super pragmatic thing that I do with like every client that I do as a personal practice, um, uh, try and take an emotional risk each day, track them. You know, just like you track workouts or or, uh, what you're eating if you're trying to change it, track the one thing that is just a little bit past what feels emotional, because it doesn't matter what work we do in our brain. It's our gut that needs to learn it. And your gut is not going to learn it's okay for me to show myself fully and be here unless you do it and you survive. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's how we retrain again and again through just pushing the envelope a little bit more. Can I show up a little bit more, be a little more vulnerable, and do I survive that moment? Maybe even the other person responds vulnerably to me, and this feels a little more intimate what's happening.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so just doing that alone is, is a start of a practice.
0: Yeah, and that's, that's what I started to do is I started to take little risks, you know, maybe not taking off my mask of masculinity. I took off uh, a, one that wasn't so glued to my face, right? And I started yeah, to practice, yes. practice sharing intimate moments with people. And what I found was um, relatability. Every time I would put a post on social media, uh, something really raw and real about who I was and uh, before it used to be shameful. And now I kind of lead with that, right? Because it's what people want to see. It's what people feel connected to because they're struggling with the exact same things. And when I started to put out this work with within the gay community, it was amazing. the, The response I got, like I put out one video about being frustrated with the gay community and the lack of true connection because we're all hiding behind these masks and, I think within a month, I've received a hundred emails from different gay men telling me their story around you know feeling like they have to hide, and now they're wanting to be seen and stuff. And it was it was really validating for me. So through my own vulnerability is how I started to experience connection. Excellent.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's such. I, I think it's a double edged sword, though. I think there's a little bit of a trap where. We all know, all, all of us in the community know that this is a problem and that it gets in the way with intimacy and we all want to feel intimacy and we just really want the other guy to do it first.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <We> just, <clears throat> if, 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 if you you take your mask off and let me decide if I want to take <laughs> mine off.
0: I know, and how invalidating is that when you take off your mask and the person doesn't like what they see or feel because maybe it's transference, right? Maybe they're feeling something into themselves that they don't like what they see in you and they keep exactly. their mask on and turn around and walk away. That's yeah. very painful, right? And it's just punished you for taking off the
1: armor a little bit. Yeah, yeah you're going to strap that on tighter. Yeah, so, yeah,
0: exactly. So how can how can we start to practice finding more comfort. Obviously there's gonna be the practice, like you said, taking emotional risk each day, but is there is there other ways that we can start to practice vulnerability? I think um, I think we can
1: also start uh, let's see. I, I mean, there's this way. I won't get into like all the theory around it and things like that, but there's this way that our ability to feel vulnerable is so grounded and just feeling um, like we're okay and lovable ourselves. So I think looking at and being gentle with our own shame um, there was this great, there's this team in Portugal that does like most of the cool LGBT shame work going on in the world right now. Uh, Marisa Batos and uh, Sergio Carvalho. And they, they did this great study where they were looking at um, gay versus straight men who were chronically depressed and looking at their shame memories. And, um, and they found a, a, a big difference there, which was that um, uh, the straight men they were reporting all kinds of different shame memories from early in life. the gay men eighty percent of their memories were um were were specifically from a paternal figure a father grandfather um, that uh you know often about their gendered behavior often about how you know how they were living up to masculinity models yeah. and um and uh I mean that echoes. That echoes because if you're getting messages about how you need to be a man a certain way, that's going to come up on every date. It's going to come up every time you walk into a gay bar, every time you walk into the gym. And I think that that echo. Just watching for it and finding ways to be gentle with yourself. Um, I think. I, I mean, I think. I think learning to treat ourselves when we're alone as worthy of care and of worthy of behaving loving toward. Mm. is
0: is an important start. I love that. uh, This has been a really hard one for me and I think been such a journey and I can't even really think of something that I could say to the audience that this is what I did because there was just so many things that I think all had to come together for me to develop self-worth. Is it was a it was a big issue for me in my life is not feeling worthy, not feeling good enough, and I think a lot of my life, um, I got validated on how I looked, and I became very reliant on external validation, and that became an addiction within itself, and it became a, a, a it became a reason why I never developed internal validation and sense of worthiness for myself is because I always got it outside of myself, so yeah. I, I got to a point in my life where I was just so tired of my worthiness being dependent on other people. I started to do this internal worthiness work. And as I started to do that, I actually became really aligned to being able to be more vulnerable because I knew that I had this soft cushion of worthiness to fall back onto if I was, was rejected. Right. So maybe we can just talk a bit about that and break that down. Like, are there things that we can do to, to, as human beings, not even just as gay men, as human beings, to break down, uh, or to, sorry, to build up um, self worth.
1: There's sort of there's the short road and the long road, right? There's because uh, there are there are certainly models out there, and I've trained these groups of uh, compassion and self compassion meditation and things like that. But um, but but I think just. Sometimes just beginning by asking yourself when you're catching those moments, when you notice this is happening or, or just that that familiar sinking of your heart or tightness in the gut to ask yourself, um, if I were my own best friend, what would I do? What would I do for myself right now? Hmm. I like it's, that. It's almost never what we actually have been doing that makes us feel bad it's almost never spending another three hours on Grinder to find the perfect partner for the night. It's, <laughs> um, it's almost never, you know, uh, uh, you know, drinking, drinking uh, till we forget what's happening that evening. You know, these, these are typically not how we answer that question for ourselves, um, but they are things that can build up as habits that we've been
0: doing a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. And I think, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to kind of recollect and see like what, what's one thing that stood out for me as far as my own, you know what it was for me? It was, it was changing the habits of the things that I engaged with. So you, you kind of hit the nail on the head. Like I deleted grinder because grinder for me was a, was a unworthiness experience. It made me feel unworthy. um, And or made me become more heavily reliant on external validation right? Which yeah. reinforces your unworthiness. Um, yeah. So I really started to kind of build things into my life that, that, that showed me my worth. They were mirrors to my worth. So surrounding myself with people that that treated me with value, I think was, yeah. a, was a big one. Um, and then as I started to have those mirrors back to me, I was able to start reflecting, you know, and shining that light within. So it was, you know, a lot of that kind of played into it. And then as I started to develop self-worth, I got better at setting boundaries, which were, were the filters of who I'm letting into my world that I'm only going to allow people in that are going to treat me the way that I deserve to be treated. So it kind of like, it's hard to just say it happens in this continuum, right? Because you really yeah. just start to chip away at it and, and, um, and and do those things. And, and it, it builds
1: over time, right? It might be that at first you can only find one genuine vulnerable friend, or, or maybe as you begin to value yourself more, you realize that, um, that, that that's not as reciprocal a relationship as you thought. And it's, it's always a, a, just a slow step forward one after the other of mm-hmm. what is it today that if I really loved myself, what would I do for myself
0: today? Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. And even asking yourself, what do I need? I think yeah. is, is a big thing. Unmet needs is so common. Um, and I think one of the, you know, unmet needs leads to us feeling angry and we express mm-hmm. that anger and then we get more unmet needs, right? Um, so I always ask myself, what do I need right now? Well,
1: and I I think uh, speaking of vulnerability risk, one of the big ones that I often hear is um, expressing a need. Like how many times have you heard mm-hmm. uh, a gay man in your life, maybe yourself, who says, um, my partner didn't do this for me, and it was really important to me, yeah, and someone responds with, Well, did you tell him no, if I told him it wouldn't count
0: yeah, yeah.
1: It's, we set up these rules for ourselves as if uh as if it's not this sort of um Completely or, or organic, psychic kind of kind of love. Then our friends don't really care about us. Then our parents don't care about us. Then our uh, our husbands don't care about us. And um, and and learning to learning to convey what those needs are, I think, is such a big thing.
0: Mm. I think it's huge. Being um, expressive, and I think actually why don't we take a, a moment and kind of just talk about some of the things that um are pretty vulnerable for us as yeah. as gay men like what what is um what are the things that we're holding back that maybe we can start to be aware of because i think with a lot of people and actually a lot of people i work with they don't resonate with shame because mm-hmm. it's so we've created so many masks to pre- preserve ourselves from experiencing shame that we're not even aware of of that we have shame that, right. We're just aware of these masks that we might wear. So it's so deep rooted. So what are the things that we're actually scared to show that, that we can start to connect with those things and start to bring them in practice, taking these emotional risks per day. Cause if we're not even sure what we're risking, then how are we going to start to risk it? Right. Yeah. I, you know, so many people I work with don't,
1: don't know what feels risky at first And so we start with what would feel uncomfortable in this relationship, but it's a need, it's a boundary. You know, we get so afraid to say no because if we're unlovable, then like clearly clearly, a no from us means the other person leaves our life. Um, So so needs, boundaries, um, genuinely sharing how we feel about something, especially if we disagree with the person we're with. Um, so oftentimes, I'll encourage people to just start with any of those and check in with your gut. You know, again, we're, we're, we can't think our way out of this box. This is this whole body reaction. So what are you feeling when you do this? And as soon as you start to get a, a thread of that flavor of like, this is the thing that puts my stomach in knots, or this is the thing that makes my heart feel just sunk in concrete and cold and cut off um follow that because there will be moments once you once you find that that feeling you're gonna have moments where you don't know and you can't articulate why it feels risky why it feels scary you know why am i so scared in this moment to tell this friend how much he means to me why am i scared in this moment to um to share that I'm really burnt out and I, and I can't help you. Um, Why, why does this feel so threatening to me? Um, And then, and then you could still take that step. So just following, following the feeling, look for the sensation. What's the Mm. place that where, where your, your body's own kind of animal wisdom is saying, this is the place that you don't go. You'll eventually find words for it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I always tell my clients that too, that my, our bodies are always speaking to us, right? Yeah. We experience it in all over our body really, but a lot of people don't have very good body awareness <laughs> because they don't, they don't spend time and give the body the, the attention that it needs in order to, to, to do that. Is there anything that you can think of as far as strategies that people can use to start to develop a relationship with that aspect of their body? I I don't think there's any one thing that
1: works for everybody. I've known some people where it's uh, physical training or, or exercise or dance or massage or um, or you can find a lot of meditations out there now that slowly guide you through drawing attention to parts of your body. Mm. Um, I think it's also a way I'm just, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, so one of the things I did a few years ago, because I always thought it looked beautiful and, it would be neat. I, uh, for those of you listening to the podcast who can't see what a bear I am, um, <laughs> I decided to sign up for classic ballet classes. And That's amazing. Um, yeah, and there's this, um, like, you have to do things with the body to talk with the body. It won't it, it won't shout you, and and I think it's also bidirectional. Like because we feel so many emotions in our body, because that's where so much of the action is happening. By the time as adult gay men, we're we're trying to figure out what we want, what we need, who we are authentically. Um, we've we've pushed mute so many times. We just don't even know there's talking happening there. So it it's slow and it takes time and um, and let it be fuzzy, let it be. Uh, I always think of, you know, for little kids, you always see like the sticker charts for the fridge or something where it's like the today I'm feeling, um, you might not have those words if you've already uh, always ignored your body. You might, you might notice uh, things range from uh, nausea to choking. And those are the emotions, you know, whatever it is, but just letting it be, Letting those sensations be what they are, risk sharing that with someone. This happened, and it felt like this to me. Let someone that's close to you share what feeling word they'd apply. Let them say, I felt that too, and I feel that when this happens.
0: Yeah yeah I really like that and I think for for myself um, I was a master repressor growing up I experienced some significant traumas when I was younger and I learned very quickly to shut off my ability to feel in my body because it was so intense for me and I became very heady and uh, I was always living in my thoughts and part of my healing was to learn how to start to pay attention and draw my internal gaze from my mind down into my body and it's amazing because when you do that you 're actually able to tune into the true essence of love of joy of bliss of these uh, these states they 're not emotions we don 't cultivate them from outside of ourselves they they 're just they 're just there and it 's our job to to move down into the body and pay attention to them and then we cultivate them right um, yeah. so yeah so i've had that experience and then um the other part of what you said was to share these experiences with people and open yourself up and um i have i have uh, some people that, you know, express these things to me. And even in the gay brotherhood group, people starting to share and be very vulnerable and they have moments of courage where they're feeling safe to to share these experiences with. And then they share and then the next day, they've moved into a state of feeling not as confident and not as courageous, and they regret um, sharing and being vulnerable. And you know, I classify this as a vulnerability hangover. Um, yeah, <laughs> what I use can- the
1: same expression. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Total. Brene Brown, I think, is coined that term. Yeah. I love, I love Brene Brown. But um, yeah. what can what can we do when we have this experience? I also have this experience. I get vulnerability hangovers um, still. Yeah. And I share very yeah. vulnerably and openly. What what can we do to, to overcome this? Um, I think there are two things. So
1: one is um, one is I, I I think that online groups give us so much potential to practice, but they're flight simulators. I think yeah. we get more out of it, and we also have the opportunity for you know I don't know if I respond to a vulnerable post from. A loved one, or in the group on Facebook, um, I don't know if that person needs comfort the next day, but someone who sees your face, someone who saw how hard it was, they do. Yeah, and um, and then I think it goes back to why I put uh, hand in hand with this vulnerability practice is self care, because that's the moment to ask if I'm my best friend right now. What do I need? Yeah what is this vulnerability hangover need? Does it, is it, um, it, it is it that's that mix of sensations where my body's telling me that I'm rejected and I need to call someone who's a really dear friend who really loves me and just have that moment of connection whether we talk about it or not? Is it, um, is it for some people it's exercise? For some people it's, am I, uh, I know for me, uh, I, I first started sort of, sinking back into the body with meditation practices. But all of these could be ways. But but just asking like what what do I need? What do I need right now? If I if I give myself permission, I think that's a big barrier. Can I give myself permission to need to comfort myself after being vulnerable? Can that be okay? And once I do that, what is the thing I need?
0: Hmm. Yeah, that that hits home big time. And I think the vulner- the reason why we need to be vulnerable is because we are feeling shameful. And then when we're vulnerable, it's going to ignite these feelings of shame inside of us. And what is the one yeah. thing that thrives um that, that allows shame to thrive? And it's secrecy. Right. And you exactly. said that from the very beginning. And and what's yeah. the opposite of secrecy? It's connection, right? Yeah. So allowing yourself to connect with somebody who's going to um reflect back to you the courage that it took to share that I think is, is so important. Yeah.
1: I'm, I'm having this meta awareness where I'm thinking I never had the great idea to tell any of my therapy clients, you know, and if you have this vulnerability hangover, this shame spiral tomorrow, reach out to me. Yeah. Um, sometimes that happened organically, but, uh, uh, but I'm thinking as we talk about that, like, Man, that would be a great practice even with, like, close friends of, like, this was a really hard moment. Like, let me know if you wake up tomorrow and this feels, like, too much.
0: Yeah. And and how do we know if it's a safe environment to share vulnerably? Because sometimes a vulnerability hangover can be so intense because we share too much too soon. Yeah. Right? So the part of it is knowing our own... Um, Our own threshold, right? And when, but when we're new to vulnerability, how do we know what that is?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, my, my initial answer is always you're new to it, you will mess up. Like you, you will fall down, you'll overshare in a way where the person runs away from you. Um, This will happen and it's okay. Like give yourself permission for it to be new. Yeah. I, I also encourage, start small um it's uh it's like the person who never complains in their relationship and then the one time they speak up in a fight it turns out they've held on to a laundry list of the past decade <laughs> like it's that's um that's sometimes what we do with vulnerability and so like when i would assign risk logs to to uh, clients to trainees when i practice them it's like figure out that like one is just past what i would do every day 10 is i would die of shame or uh could never see this person again in my life and aim for it too yeah. like aim for it two. build a habit of twos they'll grow but aim for it too because um the it's more important i think to cultivate a willingness to have that vulnerability than to like win the vulnerability Olympics.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. What's the most vulnerable thing you've ever done? Oh, that's <laughs> tough. Um,
1: oh, I don't know. I, so one of the types of therapy I practice, like it used to be the common practice at um in-person workshops that you would end with shame exposure exercises oh god where where you literally in a group of people share what's most on your mind that you're most ashamed of Um, Wow! so but i've also done that more than once so it's hard for me to think of like what's the most vulnerable maybe maybe getting married that's a vulnerable thing yeah yeah maybe um my My best man asked me this question um, which uh I'll add the warning label that like every time I've been a best man or organized a bachelor party since I've asked the groom to be, and then they've always divorced within the year and blame the question so it's <laughs> it's a challenge but um but my best man asked me at one point he said, Are you getting married because you love this man and you want to?" build this life with him or are you getting married because deep down there's a part of you that's afraid you can't do better and you have to go with this relationship
0: Mm, that's interesting
1: yeah and um he later admitted he was just being a jerk because he hated that my uh, fiancé wasn't vegan as well. But, um, but, but I thought it was a beautiful question of like, you know, because there is that vulnerability. There's that, can I trust my own authenticity enough to say that I'm choosing what's right for me in this moment? Can I um, trust my readiness and willingness to be vulnerable with this other person? Can I... Um, trust that I love myself enough that I'm not just running away from fear of loneliness or running away from a fear of not finding, you know, the better deal. Like, um, yeah, so I'll stick with that. Getting married's the most vulnerable thing I did.
0: I like that one a lot. I like it. I like that, that question too. Cause I think, um, It makes me think about the gay community and how we're constantly. I, I like um, the saying that we're we're stepping over a dime to find a nickel or something, or yeah, right, constantly. And then we get to a point in our lives where it's like we've let yeah. go of all these wonderful men that because we always thought there was something better coming along. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but I wonder how much of that is when somebody good comes along and they're ready to to reflect back to you all that you're worth, and you don't feel worthy enough to see that in yourself that you're, you're not willing to settle into something because of fear of being vulnerable, right? Yeah, I've had guys that have come along that have treated me like gold. And I remember telling my best friend that they're too nice. They're too, yeah. they're, you know what I mean? And, and these sorts of things because I wasn't ready to receive yeah. pure unconditional love and, and re- them reflecting back to me how beautiful I am because I didn't see that in myself. So how could I accept that? And I think as we become more aligned to our authenticity and we develop the self worth, I think we're able to give and receive a really beautiful, deep kind of love. That yeah. that is. I have a question. Oh, but I, I wanted to ask what the most vulnerable thing is you've done. Oh, okay. Oh, I like that. I don't often yeah. get uh, get it that back, so I really like that. Oh, um, God, there's a lot. Um, You know, I'm probably going to say it was an ongoing relationship with a guy that I, that I was really into. And, um, I moved from Calgary to Vancouver to be with this guy and, um, I was learning how to not repress my feelings anymore. This was around that time when that happened. I, co- I just got out of an eight-year-long relationship, moved into this relationship, and I started to do <laughs> the ops. I was learning vulnerability. And I yeah. just threw... I barfed myself all over this guy, and it was so vulnerable for me, and he didn't receive it. And it just freaked him out. He went into his shell, and it was so painful for me. And I still... See that as probably one of my deepest shame wounds that I experienced, but it also was the what set me on the trajectory of de- developing a deep, deep sense of self worth, and yeah. so that that pain tr- I turned it into my power, which is really beautiful. But oh man, at the time it was it was some serious uh, vulnerability and too much. Yeah. I didn't I didn't have boundaries around my vulnerability. I just was like, "There you go, there I yeah. am." So I, I I'm glad you. Can also
1: speak about it um, with kindness to yourself too. I think I think this is something in all of our histories as gay men, we've all had the moment of the the vulnerability explosion on someone, and yeah. the the shame and the pain of sitting after with seeing them leave. Yeah,
0: and and that's actually some of my biggest relation, like relational traumas are my pace of what I want is not at the same pace as what the other person wants, and it creates. Um, disconnection and that disconnection reignites my own shame response inside of me and my and and my abandonment responses from when I was younger and some of the things I experienced so I'm I'm almost like kind of relearning what what love looks like and feels like and how I can um, navigate my way through that by honoring my own pace and being aligned to what I want and being authentic to what I want and I know that that the law of attraction will come into play and bring me someone who's on that same pace as me. Um, and that's where I'm at right now, which is a really cool place because I'm content being single, but I know that I want something um, else as well. And I want someone to share that that with, but I'm at a place now where I feel, I feel a completeness inside of me and I want to invite somebody in to compliment that, not, uh, whereas before I think I was coming at love where I felt like I needed it to complete who I was. So, Yeah. yeah. My question, um, and then we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up here. I could probably talk to you all day. So I want to respect your time. Um, but just about, about being married. Um, yeah. you've been married for 11 years. What's the, what's a secret sauce for you? Um, oh, just, just over six, uh, San Francisco. Uh, we've been together. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. Yeah. We've been together almost 11 years, but married to six. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's a big deal. And it's a big yeah. deal for me to, to see that. It's not often you see that in the gay community. Um, What's something that you can share with us as far as what's a, what's a secret ingredient to making a successful marriage? Um, I think
1: this is I, I, I think this really just comes back to vulnerability um, my uh, he, he He would joke in hindsight my husband that he um, he felt like he had to rock the boat as much as possible first to make sure that it would you know you want to make sure it'll sail. Um but uh you know he's this like French, very emotion front person. And um and and he would not hide anything that led to an insecurity that led to a jealousy. I mean it was a challenge for me to keep up with that and to reciprocate that. Um I I mean I've learned a lot about my own guardedness from our relationship. Um but I think that's Um, I think that's a big piece. And then I think, um, I think willingness to change. Um, I think we've both changed in response to how we learn and grow from each other. Mm. And, um, and, and I think sometimes our own guardedness our own fear of, you know, that, that, that part of ourselves, that's wanting to sort of uh, ride the brake and like, keep an eye out in case uh in case this doesn't work out and we move on like how do i how do i stay ready and um and uh and and we undermine that when we allow ourselves to adapt and conform to like what is what is choosing this life with this person hmm.
0: i love that it's juicy yeah. um so this is me tip of the week. I always like to leave the the listener with a tip on how to become more aligned to their authenticity, stepping into their truth, being confident in who they are. What's one tip that you'd like to leave the listener with?
1: I, so I love talking movies. Uh, okay. Uh, well, the, the ones that come up the most with gay men that touch their heart, that feel true. Weekend comes up a, a lot in conversation. I just saw End of the Century, which is about very much this theme of realizing that um, your unwillingness to be vulnerability can, can change your future in ways that make it smaller. And um, so, so find the queer movie that made you cry and watch it with a friend. Hmm. That's my tip of the week.
0: Ooh, I like it. I like it. Yeah. Cool. Well, I wanted to personally thank you um, for donating an hour of your time to come on and inspire my uh, my listeners and myself with uh, your wisdom. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation. So, thank you very much for that. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it too. Good. I'm glad. (laughs)